This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Can you see me now? Yes. Aren't I good looking? Yes. <laughs> sure. We'll go with that. If that's what you need to hear. Is that the appropriate answer? <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. So uh, I failed at releasing Diesel in 2017. That's okay. You only missed by a few days. Yeah. <laughs> but what a shitty few days to miss it by. Why? Because now it's na- now I was a liar when I said I was releasing Diesel this year. Yeah, close or enough. Last year now. What's a few days between friends? I don't think it's going to go on your tombstone or anything. I think it'll be okay. True. Think of all the people who chose some other programming language because Diesel wasn't 1.0 in those three days. <laughs> I still need to write my uh, like longer blog post and try and get some traffic on Hacker News and you know actually take advantage of the 1.0 uh, hype. Marketing benefits? Yeah, the, market, the marketing benefits of uh, releasing a major version. Mm-hmm. Cool. It's crazy, though. You know, normally for each release, I list out all the contributors to the release in the official release commit message. Uh, and since there haven't been really, like, a list for the last three releases, because the last three, re- three releases have just been me writing docs, I thought it'd be fun to, you know, just list everybody who's ever com- uh, contributed to Diesel. Yeah. And uh, excluding the core team, there have been 98 contributors now. Cool. How big is the core team? Three people. All right. So you're at 101 people. 101. Nice. I'm one of those. You are. I think I have one commit. <laughs> Fortunately, there are no Dalmatians. There are no what? Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians. I get it now. All right. <laughs> well, congratulations. Thank you. 1.0 is out. Now you can go add some more features. Yes, finally. <laughs> I can work on features. Now again. you can write some code again. So I got a tweet on, I don't know, I think New Year's Day, maybe, or maybe the day after, not quite sure, from Tobias Pfeiffer, I think is how you say his name. And he had submitted a talk to the RubyConf CFP about, I don't quite remember this, he he referenced the CFP in the tweet. So I vaguely remember there being a, a proposal about like other languages that people go to from Ruby. Mm-hmm. My question to him was like, is this just conjecture or have you done like research to figure out where people are going. And I think he was mostly at the time, if I remember correctly, I'm sorry, Tobias, if I'm wrong, but mostly was just going off of like hearsay, right? Where is he hearing people go? And so he then did a survey called where do Rubyists go and ended up with a bunch of responses and got this like cool little chart, which I will send to you. Hang on. Let me see. So yeah, he broke it down by like the survey said like, what are you doing now? And are you learning it for work or for free time? Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting. I really like the part to see where like what languages people are learning are learning in their free time versus what are they learning due to work. So like Haskell, for instance, it's like the eighth most popular language learned in this survey, but it's almost entirely free time, right? Yeah. People aren't working in Haskell or Rubyists who responded to the survey are not working in Haskell. How about that? Um, this is probably not a scientific survey, <laughs> but the languages that have more of like more work associated to them are like JavaScript, obviously, um, Java, Go, Java, Go 
has like a pretty like a, almost like a 50 yeah. 50 almost a 50 50 balance like that's a decent that's know. not even close to 50 50 that's like 75 percent free time maybe 80 percent free time oh i'm conflating it with python which is next to it yeah python python's half and half but rust is another it was the fifth most popular language on this list but it also dominated by free time at this point yeah which i think i'm surprised at both of those that it's so high and that it's so dominated by free time. I mean, I, I think there's some selection bias happening in these results. Sure. Like, if you're wanting to answer the question, where do Rubyists go? Uh, I mean, Elixir is not where the majority of people are, are going from Ruby to use another language. But the number of people who are still using Ruby, or at least still a part of the community who would respond to this sort of survey, definitely are the kinds of people who are more likely to be uh, learning, you know, Elixir and I think the fact that Elixir is number two it is the same reason that Rust is number five. Like Ruby, it's like, well, programmers like shiny new languages. And likely also, like if you look further down this list, the reason why Crystal ranks so highly on this list, right? Right. Which makes sense. I was interested to see that, uh, you know, Prologue was on there at all. <laughs> yep. I also like that Clojure is not, apparently not a Lisp dialect. Yeah. I, somebody also commented the label for Lisp dialects. Has an, missing the has an open friend with no closed friend, and they were like, "Was that an intentional troll?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I just thought it was cool that like he's actually like, oh, I don't know. Let me ask some people and figure it out. And yeah, like we said, it's not a scientific result, and probably has some selection bias in the population of people that responded to it. You know, and there's probably just looking here, there's probably close to two thousand responses. But I don't know if those are two thousand individual respondents or people selecting multiple languages, that kind of thing. Right. So it was cool. I'll link to it in the show notes just so you can get a look and see what other people who, like as Sean said, are likely still members of the Ruby community or adjacent to the Ruby community and were able to respond to the survey. I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah. Last week I was working on a test failure. We had so on the project I'm on, somebody Paul introduced a refactoring to how we were clearing out some geocoder stubs because the project has to do some geocoding stuff and he made a really seemingly harmless change to how that works and then like half the test suite broke <laughs> and we couldn't quite understand what like it was like oh okay i'm sure this is pretty simple and we looked at the change that caused like half the test suite to break and it just didn't make any sense it was like why would this change cause this many failures and what, what were you changing again we changed the way the geocoder was stubbed. Okay. And really only changed it in this particular test, in like one test, but then the tests everywhere else broke. And the way in oh, which... Oh, so you had some global state leaking? Right, but the way in which we changed it was like intentionally meant to be like, it only impacts this example, right? It should not leak. It gets reset between examples. And it was really perplexing. And it was just one of those moments. It reminded me of the conversation we had where you... Like, Herman and I ended up, like, we went away for Christmas, came back. It was a slow week, so I was like, let's dive into this together. Like, it's been six days. Master is still broken. <laughs> right. Let's figure this out. And so we just dove into it together, like, him on his laptop, me on my laptop, like, next to each other, like, investigating various different things about the geocoder gem and how it handles, like, it has a test mode involved. And so we were looking through, like, tracing through test mode code there. And it just reminded me of the conversation you had where you were talking about where you did VR and there was like a hole on the ground and you ended up putting your head down oh, right. and like hitting your so like this was that type of like we spent the better part of the entire day and both of us were just completely perplexed as to why this was failing and i commented that i was like i feel like i don't know how the world works anymore like it was just one of, <laughs> it was just one of those bugs where i was like this is shaking my understanding of like how the fundamentals 
of this entire thing that we're doing <laughs> right work and i haven't once had you, once you start to lose faith in your abstractions i did not have any like i had no idea what was happening so ultimately i think the next day we kind of looked at it together and we found like a way to fix it but we're it's one of those bugs where we know what the fix is but to this day, neither like we spent enough time on it, and both of us had to be like, you know what, just commit the fix. I don't know why it was broken, but here it is. And I wish I had a better tale about it. But I think the interesting part was just like one of those days where we both of us are banging our head against this bug, and it's just like to the point where it makes us question our ability, our sanity, our career choice. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> why is this so difficult? It was like a five line change, and why like we revert it and the test pass. We don't revert it. And the tests fail and like, oh, it's just so baffling. Anyway, yeah. um, and the fix had to do with like upgrading the version of Geocoder we were using and then also changing it so that instead of subbing, long instead of stubbing longitude and latitude, we, ch we stub this coordinates key, which contains longitude and latitude, but it still doesn't explain why it ever worked. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, yes, I understand that what this is supposed to fix, but I don't understand how it was ever working if we weren't doing this in the first place. And it's totally baffling. Yeah, I mean, that would, ma that would make me question if there was like a bug in the mocking library. Yes, and that's what I started down. That's where I started down, and I was like, okay. Like, you know what? Now that we have a workable solution, getting to the answer, as much as I want to get to that answer, I have to just say, like, there's other stuff I could probably be doing here sure. and moving on to that. But it's also just one of those cases where, like, as we were looking at it, I kept conflating the issue we were looking into with my issues with the overall architecture and how we're handling stubbing the geocoder throughout our test suite, right? And so like, I would notice these things. It's, it's almost like that we talk about like having to have discipline when you're refactoring. It's like mm -hmm. having discipline when you're investigating these bugs and being like, yes, that is really obnoxious. It is <laughs> unlikely that this is the culprit. So at one point I decided like, okay, while well, you look into this, I'm going to rewrite the way we stub geocoder like throughout the entire system. <laughs> I'm going to burn the whole test suite down and then make <laughs> everything green again. And I got a little bit for, I got like a little further into it. Like the first like test case of things that need to stub the geocoder. Basically it works off of um, the way it was set up anyway, is it works off of after create callbacks on, a mo on the address model to say like, okay, now geocode this address, which mm -hmm. basically means now anything in your system that ever persists an address has to be geocodable. So you have to stub that response. And so the way we were doing that before is basically having like this default response and saying like, well, if, unless you've been told otherwise, just always geocode to this, um, mm -hmm. which is global, which ends up having like global state basically. So I was trying, <laughs> I was trying to avoid that and tear it all down. And then like, as I got into different reasons, we were stubbing the geocoder. I was like, oh, I see why we did this. Yep. I see why we did this. Yep. I see why we did this. Yep. This sucks, but I see exactly why we did this. <laughs> <laughs> Did you at least figure out whether you were leaking global mutable state before or whether the change introduced some leak of global state? We were definitely carrying over geocoder stubs between tests before. Okay. But the change cleared them out for this particular test, right? So we were like, oh, clearly that's the problem. So what we did instead was like, we got it to the point where we could run two tests and the second one would fail. If we ran the second one without the first one, it would pass. And right. I was like, okay, this is our thesis. Here we go. We're going to dive in. This is the this is the problem we need to solve. And the we were able to solve it in the way we talked about where we did the coordinates change or whatever. But it didn't it never explained why it failed in the first like never to the point of explaining why it failed in the first place. Like we did the thing where we investigated, you know, which stubs were in place at the time of execution of each one of those tests, what line of code needed to be executed in order. Like we even got to the point where we could run just one test and have that one test fail 
if we copied this like particular line of code into that te- like from test A into test B. Right. It was like, okay, this line is what exercises this failure. <laughs> I do remember now it had to do with like geocoding a particular point versus geocoding a location name. Okay. And the stubbing library behaving differently when you were doing those two different things. Like you can do, you can like geocode a point or you can say like geocoder.search and give it like a zip code or a address right. or something like that. And for whatever reason, those are returning inconsistent results when you have stubbed what you're supposed to be stubbing. So <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I wonder if some something must have been caching or something, I'll bet. Yeah. That's what we were thinking. That's why like, we started inspecting like, okay, tell us what you have for stubs. Tell us what you have for default stub. Tell us what, and like just looking through the examples and being like, what? This seems like the same exact thing. I don't understand. And like I said, just one of those bugs that we ultimately were like, we have a pretty good idea if we wanted to keep pulling at this thread for the rest of the day, how to solve it. Or we could just mm-hmm. say like, let's let's move on and forget this ever happened because <laughs> it's, yeah. hurt, it's hurting my brain. But I'm glad that we like at least righted the test suite, obviously. So that's great. The test suite returned to green. And, you know, I don't quite feel so um, unsure about the state of the universe anymore. <laughs> I feel disappointed that I wasn't able to come, at a, come up with a root cause and a patch or something like that. But oh, well. Sure. It's always been a struggle with uh, Diesel's test suite or like even crates.io's test suite avoiding uh, any state leaking. And sometimes it's really minor stuff. Like one, some of the most annoying tests to write are the uh, tests that test our transaction method, because we cannot be in a transaction to run that test sort of by definition. So any any time a test uses a connection that's not inside of a transaction, I make sure that it only ever operates on a table, and that table has a unique name that is basically the same name as the test. Right. And then you know has to drop the table. Uh, Right. In the Rust equivalent of an insure block, which is actually kind of a funny to, thing to write. Basically, you just have like a struct that implements drop to do whatever you want. And so that way, if your test panics, that thing will, you know, it's drop implementation gets called. But uh, there, there's some trickier ones, like a bunch of tests, for example, around insert. I want to deal with, you know, a bunch of different variations of how you insert things and how that interacts with default values. But I want to have to create like 18 billion different user tables. So most of these tests just drop table users, create table users with what, you know, the new default values I want, but the same general structure. I have a ton of tests that do that because, hey, it's it's Postgres. Like you can you can just do that. It's awesome. And then I had SQLite support and uh, our SQLite test suite runs uh, against an in-memory database. So it's like, cool, that's fine. No problems there. And then we had MySQL support. And MySQL not only doesn't let you modify schema inside of a transaction, Rather than erroring, it just implicitly commits the transaction. Oh. <laughs> so that one's fun. But then, like, there's a bunch of cases. In Diesel, they were harder to track down. So, like, we have to run our integration suite for my against MySQL. So, first of all, the MySQL integration suite just skips a ton of tests. They're valuable tests that we should be testing against MySQL, but they are tests that modify the schema in a transaction. And, like, I can't do that on MySQL, and I haven't gotten around to rewriting our entire test suite yet (laughs) but then like we also have to run it uh, on a single thread and it's not because like there's any you know state or order dependence or anything like that in our tests it's because for whatever reason the the way we're doing stuff is really really prone to deadlocking on mysql Hmm. Um, and i'm guessing it's because the other another bad thing that i did uh in these uh in these tests is most of our tests operate on what are essentially fixtures 
Like they're not they're not actually fixtures in that they're not always there. But you have you call a function like connection with Sean and testing users table and that gives you a connection that has two records in the users table. But I wrote all these tests assuming a, a constant value for the ID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So eventually I, I made some change where like that was going to be a problem. But um, anyway, so we started going through and like, all right, what's it going to take to make our test suite not care about the ID of, of these records? And eventually we just gave up and said, all right, whatever. We're just going to specify the ID in our insert. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one that deadlocks on MySQL. But for whatever reason, like doing that just deadlocks MySQL all the time. Like if three transactions all try to create records with the same primary key at the same time, it deadlocks. And we've, we've struggled with deadlocks on Postgres too in the past. And, and it's always stuff that like I can never quite figure out why it is deadlocking because I can see where the two transactions are waiting for the same lock, but I can't see where they become interdependent on each other. So let's say you have three transactions. Mm-hmm. Transaction A inserts some data into a table uh, and then, you know, does some other stuff. And while, while it's happening, transaction B opens. And very importantly, it does any query uh, other than the one that causes the deadlock and then uh, tries to insert a record or update a record that would conflict with the same primary key. And then transaction C also does the same thing, runs any other query and then also tries to acquire a row lock on this row that was met, uh, modified by transaction A. Mm-hmm. Now, right, transaction B and C are both waiting on this row lock. Yep. So then transaction A rolls back. So now what should happen, right, is either transaction B or transaction C should get that row lock. And then the other one just continues to block because it can't acquire the lock yet. But for whatever reason, Postgres is like, oh, these two things are both waiting on the same lock. Rather than giving it to one of them, it just says deadlock detected. Hmm. And so we've ended up with several tests where we just have to uh, – it never, it never caused a problem for the users table for us because, like I said, it's very important that any other query is run before the, they try to acquire the row lock. If Interesting. The, if, if the first thing they do in the transaction is try to acquire that row lock, it doesn't deadlock. And so with the users table in particular, that's always the very first query you run in the transaction, so that never deadlocks on Postgres. But then we've had other tables where we've just like struggled with it and basically – there's a bunch of tests now where I the very first thing I do is acquire a uh, exclusive table lock on the table that's causing the problem, which hmm. basically makes like then a small subset of the tests single threaded. But those are always tricky. Have you thought about like boiling this down to a like pure SQL test case somehow? And like... oh yeah, no, this is definitely like when I was trying to understand it, I was debugging it by opening PSQL and running just the actual queries in multiple tabs. Have you thought about posting that to the Postgres mailing list and being like, what the hell's going on here? Why doesn't this behave the way I would think it should behave? I probably should. I don't like mailing lists. That seems to be the way it's done with Postgres, right? It is. Um, (laughs) No, that would be a reasonable thing to do. I guess I mostly haven't done it because I'm sure somebody's going to be like, why the hell are you trying to do this in the first place or just call me dumb? Well, that's that's how my experiences with mailing lists tend to go. Yeah, maybe. But I, I wouldn't pitch it as like, maybe not pitch it as like, I think it should behave like this, more of like... No, I mean, it's why, not, I like, want to know why is this happening, because my understanding right. of how deadlocks work <laughs> says that this shouldn't deadlock. Right. And so that would be an interesting... I would like to read the result of that, of like somebody being like, oh, the reason why it behaves like this is because of this, or just saying like, huh, I agree with you, that's weird, right? Like It would be like yeah. validation of like, okay, somebody who has more intimate knowledge of how Postgres internals work agrees with me or something like that. I should also just see if it's still a problem on PG10. Yeah, I guess. Either way, like it's it's just funny because then we have the same issue in crates.io. There's a, a bunch of unit tests that 
have to acquire an exclusive lock on a table or like the integration test suite. If any two tests ever create a crate that has the same name, it'll deadlock the test suite. Um, it sounds like you need to create a uh, unique schema for each test and then you'll be all set. <laughs> I mean, that could, that, that would be a thing to do, right? Open a transaction, drop the database, <laughs> uh, and then run all of the migrations inside that transaction. That would avoid any uh, any any deadlocks. Mm-hmm. There you I go. I think. Yeah, I don't know. It's just funny though. It's one of those interesting like, it's global state, and all your tests in in whatever language you're working in. If you're interacting with the database, you're manipulating that same global state. But it's one we never really think about. Yeah, that just reminds me of like one of the things I was trying to do while we were chasing down this test suite issue. Uh, the test suite takes like five minutes to execute, which isn't too bad, but it's not. I mean, it's not great. So I was like, uh, how about in cases where all I want to do is run the entire suite and be like, does the entire suite pass or does the entire suite fail? I like like maybe parallel specs makes sense there. So there's a parallel right. specs gem. And so I install that. And <laughs> again, <laughs> I'm like, okay, be- now let me set the stage here. Before I made that change, I had removed database cleaner and made everything execute in a transaction okay. because we're on Rails 5.1. So everything's yeah. executing in a transaction. I'm like, yeah. This should totally work. And then like 12 tests fail. And it was just another one of those things where I threw up my hands and I was like, this makes no sense to me. How could this possibly be? Everything's executing in a transaction. There's no leaking state, but there's no leaking database state anyway. Was it a, dead, was it a deadlock? No, it was like one of those like expected to find this thing in the database and did not or something. Expected to find huh. these two rows in the database and did not. So I didn't have time to look at it because again, I, my confidence was already shaken to the point where I was like, I am not prepared to take this on as well. <laughs> Right. Like, I was like, this makes no sense. But it was nice to, uh, you know, getting back to something we talked about in earlier episodes, it was nice to get rid of database cleaner and go to transactional tests everywhere. One thing I did find, and it has since been fixed on Rails Master and also on, I think also on Rails 5.1 Stable, just hasn't been released yet, is um, at least in Rails 5.1, whatever you set to be your Capybara web server, so like whatever it's going to spin up when it needs to spin up its server, uh, is going to be ignored, and it's going to start Puma every time, mm-hmm. which I didn't know, but okay. So it's going to start Puma every time, but it's also going to do so using your Puma configuration. So our Puma configuration by default, like the one that's in suspenders, says like you know the number of processes you should have is like web web processes, you know right. fetch the env- environment variable for web processes or default to one or something. And the number of threads you should is, have is, is two. Not right. one. You're gonna you're gonna blow up. Right. So you you actually want to ab- execute in like I think it's zero one mode. So zero processes and one or zero workers and one thread. Right. Is what you want right. to execute in. Um, and so that took me forever to track down. Like I didn't know what to even Google for there. I was like, uh, why I'm trying to run tests in a transaction and it's not working. Like why is this? Why is this happening? Uh, and there was a turns out there was a Rails 5.1 issue where I think the way they fixed it was there were two fixes. One is that we're good because I was like, I suspected it was Puma related and I was like, here, let me just set my Capybara web server to uh, Webrick, right? Because mm-hmm. like I know that's not going to have this problem. And I was like, it still has this problem. What the hell is happening? <laughs> and it's because it's just ignoring that. It's like, nope, nope, no, nope, we're going to run Puma. <laughs> um, so I think two changes were made. One was that it's going to respect that value if it's not set or if it's already set. And then the second change is if it's going to use Puma, I think it forces it to zero one mode. Yeah. Um, which is smart, but I like this world we're living in. Just got to get all the kinks ironed out. So the, the test suite, I think it took about mm, 12 or 16 seconds or something like that on my machine off the test suite to go back to, um, using transactions. And this isn't a feature test heavy 
test suite. So there was a lot of use of database cleaner where now there is not. So that's cool. Yeah, uh, I encourage everybody who's if you're not on Rails five one, it's a I think it's a reason enough to like yeah like that's enough to like let's let's upgrade, and then uh, just watch out for that issue I talked about. Uh, <laughs> right. And if you are on Rails five one, then and you haven't done this yet, just go do it. It's one less dependency you have to have in your application, and it's nice to have everything execute in a transaction and not worry about like you no longer have to do that thing where you're like oh the last expectation has to be something visible on the page. It can't be like a database based expectation. Because database cleaner may have already like you know that kind of thing, right? That is another piece of uh, not really global state between your tests, but but global state that you tend to want to manipulate in your tests is sharing a database connection between your tests and your app server. Right. It's funny just thinking like right Rails does it because we we control the connection pool, and since it's specifically a Rails test framework, as long as you're living in 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 that walled garden, we can totally do all the stuff we need to to override things. And it's it's funny thing about like how we do it in uh, crates.io. Our application is actually an object, and you inject the connection pool to it. Mm-hmm. And so then in the test, we just create a connection pool with a size of one. Right. The tricky thing about it, though, is that whenever we need to use the connection in the tests, we always have to make sure that's in like curly braces and indented one line. So basically, once we're done using the the database connection, it goes back into the pool. So that way, when we make our our request to the web server. You know, there's a connection in the pool for it to. Uh, Otherwise, it'll just sit there, and, sit there and wait yeah. until it times out. Yep. Otherwise, it sits there for five five seconds and then times out. <laughs> What's the significance of the curly braces and indentation? So curly braces just like create a new scope. Okay. It's kind of like in JavaScript, if you create an anonymous function and then immediately execute it. Yep. It's basically the equivalent of doing that in Rust. Okay. So any variables you assign inside of these curly braces are going to get dropped when it reaches the closing curly brace. Okay. Cool. And it knows when it's dealing with a connection. It has like a finalizer. It says like, uh, when you're done here, check this connection back into the pool. Is that what? Is that what? Right. So it doesn't return an instance of PG connection or uh, or reference PG connection. It's going to return pooled connection PG connection. So pooled connection then has a drop implementation that says check this back into the pool. Okay. Cool. I think first it checks if the connection's poisoned, but. <laughs> Yeah, and the waiting five seconds is probably like when you forget to do that, you're like, oh, okay, cancel. Like, <laughs> yep, yeah. So, so one thing that's kind of interesting because it's it's really annoying uh, testing crates.io that you have to like always remember to when you're using the you know the database connection like put it in these curly braces, mm-hmm. and you always have to get it through the app. You can never, I mean, you can assign it to a local variable inside of these curly braces, but you can't just like assign it to a variable in the first line of the connection and then just keep using it. What would be great is if I uh, just had the whole thing return a mutex of a connection, and then every and then you know everything would just sort of you. I mean, you'd still have to explicitly call lock, I guess, but I don't know. That that it's kind of fine. Or actually, it doesn't even have to be a mutex. It could be it could be just a reference counted pointer because all of the methods on connection take shared references because. I don't know. It was probably a bad idea to do that. So <laughs> let's let's back up for one second. Just to, so mutex. So you're talking about like basically an exclusive lock. Yes. It says like acquire this lock. If it's already locked, wait for me. Just wait for yes. it. And then, so what is the other thing? A reference counted pointer. Uh, yeah. In this case, it'd be an arc, actually, an atomic reference counted pointer. Mm-hmm. Actually, does the server doesn't run another thread, so it doesn't have to be atomic. But basically, it's a thing that says just it's shared, and it's specifically shared in such a way that you're allowed to share it between threads, but you can only get immutable access to it. Okay. So, like, right, Rust has uh, the compile time check of you can have multiple things read from something or one thing write to it. Mm-hmm. 
And so you can then uh, wrap it in a data structure that just says uh, at runtime, like I want to have multiple things read to this and have them all mutually own it. So you know, it's re it uses reference counting. And then there are multiple ways to move the one writer check to runtime. There's one, one that's called ref cell, which basically just whenever you get an immutable access, it bumps a counter. Whenever you get a mutable access, it bumps a counter. And if you ever try and bump the mutable access counter when there's any immutable accesses, your app crashes. And if you ever try and bump the immutable access counter whenever there's a mutable uh, access, your app crashes. Okay. And then the multi-threaded version of that is mutex or uh, read-write lock, which mutex says there can only be one reader or writer at a time. And then read-write lock says there can be multiple readers or one writer, and both of them just block until until the lock gets given to you. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to share something, that's how you do it in Rust. And I would love it would be great if I just injected the connection pool in such a way that like it returned an, an RC or an ARC or a mutex or whatever whatever type I, it needed to be for me to share this. Uh, the problem is I messed up by encouraging people to write a bunch of code that says I take PG connection, not I take some connection where the back end is Postgres. Right. So even if I did implement connection for RC uh, PG connection or RCT where T implements connection, like people write their code in such a way that I can't do that. And that also messed up what my plan was for logging because I, I, I intended to have logging be like a logging connection, which just wrapped another connection and, and took a logger and overrode all the methods on connection to log and then call the methods on the inner thing. But I can't. that's not going to work just because nobody writes their code in such a way that you can pass in either a PG connection or a logging PG connection. Right. Yes. Go back in time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you invent a time machine, please spend your time with the time machine on something better than that. <laughs> I don't know. It is just interesting, though, how much it becomes apparent in Rust. Like, and here's the mutable state. Yeah, it's one of the unique things about Rust, right? Is that it highlights that type of thing. Especially in tests, it becomes much. It becomes much clearer, and you have to dependency inject whatever you want to override from the test. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's nice is just because tests are concurrent by default. If you ever have dependent tests, that tends to uh, become obvious much more quickly. When are we going to get our uh, concurrent test by default in Rails? <laughs> um, probably Rails 6. It's a thing. I mean, it's a thing that's actively being worked on. Cool. Or more specifically, it's a thing like the prerequisite changes internally that need to happen are actively being worked on. Cool. I would look forward to that. I would use that. <laughs> it's one of those things. I was talking to somebody recently uh, in our Slack about how like I feel like as recent versions of Rails like have come out, that I've kept up in certain areas, right? So like my practices in Rails, I've quickly embraced, if not system tests, quickly embraced the architecture in which system tests are based on. And really mm -hmm. the only reason I haven't just gone to system tests is it requires like rewriting some tests. Sure. Um, basically, when I say rewriting some tests, it basically requires replacing feature with describe and scenario with it. But I can't just do that because then the descriptions would make no sense. And so I'd have to go back and rewrite all the descriptions <laughs> because I will not abide by descriptions that make no sense. Um, <laughs> but anyway, those types of things I've kept up on. But like the churn around, for example, secrets, right? So it was like, okay, we have, oh, yeah. have secrets.yaml. Oh, okay, guess what? We also have encrypted secrets.yaml. Okay, guess what? Now we only have encrypted secrets.yaml. And then when you interweave that with like deploying to Heroku where things are supposed to be in the environment, and it's like, uh, do I just have a .m file? Okay, and then I put it in secrets. What's the advantage of putting it in secrets? Why can't I just access it directly from the env? I don't... Um, right. 
So no, I mean, whole... if you're using environment variables, then the secret stuff is completely pointless. But so like that's so we were already using the environment stuff and it's like, well, I don't understand what's the win here. But then like when encrypted secrets comes around and it's like, oh, you know what? I could have just this one secret that we share. Right. Oh, so, sure. So right. Each, if you, yeah. If you want to have everybody use the same like test S3 right. bucket or something. Right. So each new developer just needs this one secret. And like, oh, okay, now I got to see the, like, is it time now for me to look at, like, okay, how are we doing environment variables when we deploy to Heroku? Would we be better off with just one environment variable for the encryption key, for the encryption key right? I don't know. So I have to, th those are the types of things that, like, I feel like we're not uh, working on enough, like, more recent Rails apps where we're making these decisions, like, either, you know, we're upgrading to these versions of Rails and you know there's really not much sense in going back and redoing how all those decisions were made right or we're not starting enough you know apps on the new versions of rails where we're really considering like okay these practices that we were doing before um does it still make sense for us to do them well and i don't think the rails team has done a great job either of making it clear like yeah and this is the thing that has changed in how you go about developing rails apps it's not just a new feature like this is the thing you're expected to use now and you know yeah Designing things in a way that gently pokes you at, at being aware that it exists. Yeah, uh, it's hard to do. I feel like it is. No, I mean, I've just mean it. Like I would not fault anybody if this was the first time that they had heard about encrypted secrets. Right. And particularly, like, what bothers me about that is particularly the churn around it. It was just like, oh, yeah, the ooh. churn was terrible. <laughs> no, and that like makes people wary of ever using a new feature in Rails. Right, because it's like, ah, well, they're gonna change it. Yeah. <laughs> so. I don't know, neither here nor there, but I'd like to like get more. So like uh, we were specifically talking about it in the context of suspenders, which is like the template for Rails projects at Thoughtbot. Like you're supposed to run instead of running Rails new, you just run suspenders, you know, project name or whatever. And it's supposed to give you all of like the Thoughtbot type conventions. But we haven't right. done a great job of like A keeping that up to date with what we're actually doing because it's not I wouldn't say it's unmaintained, but it's not there's no person like currently really jazzed up about maintaining it. And also, like, I don't think we've done a great job at keeping it up to pace with, like, what current Rails standards are. Sure. Like, for instance, it doesn't, it still has database cleaner in it, right? We don't need that anymore, necessarily. I mostly just use it now as, like, a, a, I look at its templates, and I'm like, okay, copy this over, copy that over. Like, when I when yep. I recently started a new Rails app for the Ralphapalooza end-of-year hackathon thing we did, we didn't use suspenders. We just ran Rails new, and then I copied over a bunch of templates. Part of me also regretted that because, like, we do also things, <laughs> Suspenders does things that, like, like it removes all the comments from the application.rb file or, like, all those types of files where they have, like, comments where they're, like, you know, uncomment this line to do whatever. And that's one of the things I like to do almost immediately is, like, like we've talked about with the routes file before, the documentation yeah. used to be in a comment in the routes file. It's, like, this doesn't... Like, as soon as you upgrade a version, this no longer is valid anymore. I think it makes more sense for config options, especially config options that are likely to be overridden by a significant chunk of people. Because routes are a, very, a much more contained DSL that mm -hmm. is well documented, whereas here are all of the things you can configure in Rails. Is not, I mean, there is a config object, but it literally is just an open struct, basically. Right. You know, it's not like here are all the things you can configure. It's like you may want to do, I don't remember what they are, like... I don't know, as an example, like uh, serving assets or something like that, I forget. Yeah. But like, just uncomment this line to do that. And that makes sense to me. But then like, as somebody who kind of knows where to go to look for how, like what to Google for when I want to do X, right? 
It's like, right. I, don't, I don't want that in there because I don't want to find it if I'm searching. You know, I don't want it to come up in searches if I'm looking to see if we enable that, if it's not enabled, that kind of thing. No, sure. And a lot of those are things that like we that we expect basically everybody to turn on, but we can't have turned on by default if we want Rails new to result in an app that launches without any additional configuration. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, makes sense. So, you know, like force SSL is a good example of like, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're probably going to turn that on, but we can't turn that on by default because, you know, your stuff won't work out of the box. Yeah, I would really embrace Rails coming up with like some sort of solution out of the box. It's like, and your local site runs on HTTPS. I mean, yeah, when when the uh, W3C makes HTTPS localhost work. <laughs> well, I mean, it would have to be something. It would have to be something else, right? Right, it has to be a domain that mirrors to localhost. And right. the hard part is serving, is serving a valid cert. Yep. Because like there, you know, there's lvh.me, which is just a random domain that somebody has that literally just uh, is registered to point to 0.0.0.0. But if you're doing that, you can't then also say, but here's a different IP address that I'm serving this certificate from. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe Rails New could like generate a cert. I don't know. That then it would have to install into all your browsers. <laughs> <laughs> and self-sign. Yeah, maybe not. One of the things that like a lot of people use when they're running locally will use some sort of like DNS resolver that lets them do like, you know, myproject.dev. Right. And it goes to the right place. And uh, there was an article recently well, it just wasn't recently, it was from September, where but it recently came to my attention where Chrome sixty three forces dot dev domains to HTTPS. <laughs> Because uh, .dev, it turns out, is now a valid top-level domain yep. that Google brought, and they are, they've made the decision via preloaded HSTS configuration to force all .dev domains to HTTPS. So, if you're people who, if you're somebody who likes like POW or something like that, that uh, redirects the .dev domain for you, then you may run into that. There have been some kind of like interesting slash slightly scary changes that browsers are just deciding to make these days. Oh, really? Like what? Like I'm trying to think, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. But there was a change that Firefox <laughs> yes. made. Yes, we should. If you're, are you talking about the um, what's the television show, the Mr. Robot thing? Oh no, no, I'm not talking. No, I that was a brain dead decision. Thing. We'll link in the show notes to the thing. We won't talk. I guess we won't talk about it. But the no, I mean that one was just a like they were wrong. It was dumb. End of story. Right. They basically backdoored an, an extension onto your machine that made it appear as though your machine had been hacked. <laughs> As a promotion for Mr. Robot. Um, but let me <laughs> let me. Yeah. No further comment necessary. Okay, so what Firefox does now, as of version fifty-seven, they have a database of basically various script files that are only there to track you. Mm -hmm. And basically, now Firefox just delays loading those for six seconds. Okay, Safari does stuff similar with trackers, where it kind of sandboxes them and makes them less effective. Well, it's not making it less effective. It's literally just making it load later so that it doesn't right. block uh, the rendering of the page. Right. And then it but just has a side effect of if that tracking script. So an example of a script that is considered a tracking script by Firefox but is crucial to rendering the page is Google's A-B testing framework. Right. Where it, choose, it uses JavaScript to decide, are you in cohort A or B, and then loads the page based off of that. And so, it, and so basically anything that uses that script now takes six seconds to, uh, to render a page in Firefox. Right. And as somebody who uses a plugin that blocks most of those things anyway, I can tell you that a lot of people have poorly written JavaScript that just assumes that their tracker will already be loaded and they'll be able to call methods or right. call functions on those trackers. So you end up with a lot of broken pages because of that as well. Um, I don't know. I think I might be okay with that. <laughs> I, 
I guess it's more just like these are the sort of things that feel like they should have an RFC and be part of like the standard. Yeah, but I think that the way Firefox and Apple look at their browsers is like that's a differentiating factor for them. They're going to do these extra things for you that are going to somehow per- like putting aside the Mr. Robot thing like Firefox was trying to make a play at like we're the browser who cares about your privacy, right? Right. Um and then they did the Mr. Robot thing. Um, <laughs> and Apple has been doing the same thing. You know, from WWDC when they announce like new versions of OS 10 and they talk about Safari, they always talk about every WWDC basically has some sort of like privacy feature where they're better sandboxing trackers or sure. a couple years ago was introducing ad blockers as like a officially supported thing things like that it's one of these things where now you have to change the way you you build your website to account to account for what the browsers are doing but the browsers are doing those things in what they believe to be the user's best interest right like a be- sure. for a better web right, right again and, and if that's the case that feels like it should be an rfc and part of the spec yeah i guess so I guess I don't know. I sort of have this expectation of what a web browser does and what and that thing being as faithfully representing whatever the server gives you as it, as it can. Yeah. And I feel like it there should it should just be part of a part of again, I keep saying the spec as as if like this is going to be part of HTTP or something like that. But you, you know what I mean? I feel like there should be some sort of standard of here are the additional things that browsers may or may not do that that you should account for when developing web applications and not have it just be like I guess it just sucks that faithfully following HTML and HTTP specifications is not enough to then necessarily have a website that renders well in browsers. Well, I mean, as an example, though, like users have forever been able to control which scripts they will load and which scripts they will not. Right. Basically, that's been trivial for users to do for 10 years now. Sure, right. but there's a big difference between I'm telling my browser to do something specific and presumably at least have a rough understanding of the implications of that versus something that browser does that is turned on for all users by default. I would agree with you to a point, but I think that there's enough, like, I've seen enough of people being like, this page doesn't work, and I don't know why. And me being like, do you have an ad blocker installed? And them being like, no, I don't have an ad blocker installed. And being like, okay, well, that's weird. And then you like go over to their computer and you're like, this thing right here? This is an ad blocker. It's blocking this script from running. The website was written to execute functions on that, and now that's not loaded. And so it's erroring, and none of the other JavaScript is running. Right? Like, I, I feel like there is a. It's not like the most people are running something like that, but enough are running that that, like, you have to be wary of any third party JavaScript dependencies not loading when you're writing sure. a web application. But I guess I guess a browser doing that by default, like if what if right. Chrome did that by default, right? And it was not their own. <laughs> if Chrome did it by default, their own A/B testing framework would be whitelisted, <laughs> right? But like let's um, say Optimizely, which is another A/B testing framework, right? And it was blocking Optimizely. If sixty percent is that what Chrome's market share is, something like that, something like that, probably more than that. I think Chrome. I think it's, I think it's like seventy-five or eighty percent. December 2016, it was 58.4%. So if Chrome started doing that to 60% of internet traffic, right? Like, right. that's a different story than Firefox or Safari doing it. Sure. I mean, you know, Firefox used to be 60%. Yep. And Chrome also, I'm trying to remember, there was one that, that bothered me that they that they did recently. This isn't the one that, that bothered me, but it, uh, and this one actually doesn't bother me that much, but it's the type of thing that uh, I'm, I'm sort of talking about. You know, Chrome made the decision now, if you have any input on your page anywhere, if that page isn't served over HTTPS, then the user gets the big, scary, not secure warning, mm-hmm. which it used to be they only did that for passwords or credit card forms. And both of those made complete sense because if you're 
sending either of those over over HTTP. What the hell is wrong with you? Right. Uh, but like now, if you go to crates.io and you didn't type in HTTPS and you click on our search bar, the user gets a big scary warning. Really? Crates. Mm-hmm. I- well, why? First question: Why isn't crates.io? It is HTTP crates.io redirects to HTTPS crates.io at least for me. Didn't used to. Okay, but I guess it, pr- it probably does now because maybe of, as a result of the big scary not secure warning. But isn't that a good example of like okay, Chrome did this thing, it broke a website, but it was changed for the better. So the point is though that Chrome unilaterally made that decision. Sure. We have standards committees who make who who decide that, you know what is or isn't a change that everybody should make for the better for this reason because Google shouldn't have that unilateral power to decide. Well, now all websites are going to do this. Yeah, and that's why I'm saying like this is a bad example because I agree with that change. Yes, uh, like things should just generally be serving over HTTPS, mm-hmm. but I don't like Chrome just making that decision. Yeah, and I can see that, and I can share that concern with you. Why do you think that they do that? Do you think they do it because the RFC process is just hopeless or too slow or it's a competitive advantage for them to not do it? Like, why wouldn't they do that? I mean, probably just because Google wants to do whatever's going to be best for Google and they don't want to have to report to anybody. Right. (laughs) Would be my guess. Right. I don't know if there even is a standards body that this sort of behavior would already fall under. This behavior does actually seem in keeping with their like, we just want to make the web better. Right. Some of the behaviors seem to be key in keeping with the we want to make the web better for Google. This seems to be we want to keep the web better for you. Right. Sure. Again, that's why I'm like, that's that why I'm like, this better is a bad for... example, because, right. yes, this was a, fu- a reasonable thing for them to do. It's not what they did. It's the fact that they were able to do it without right. without any sort of uh, discussion. Right. And for your point, like, it shouldn't matter if what they did was valid. It should be like that. That's the type of thing that could be like we should all talk about what we should be enforcing to go over ssl and yeah or tls sorry <laughs> you know when it comes to tracking like ultimately i think the end result of this is just everything is going to go back to tracking server side perfect <laughs> which i mean I, i'm sure that's fine but it's also just if you're trying to not be tracked that kind of defeats the purpose well if they're tracking you server side it'll be really hard to do if the cookies are isolated between domains and like you know what i mean like speaking of tracking and cookies <laughs> i've got i've got a really quick story that ha- this happened to me like six or seven months ago where on my Windows machine, Twitter and Chrome would just return me a blank white screen, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I was really confused. I was like, I, I just assumed that Twitter was broken. <laughs> um, yep. Or maybe it was on my MacBook. Actually, I think it was on my MacBook. It was on, one, it was on one computer, and then if I opened Twitter on my other computer, it wouldn't cause a problem. And I finally opened up the network inspector to see what the hell was going on. And then finally I noticed that the response code was request entity too large. And Twitter had stuck so much tracking shit inside the cookie that the server was then rejecting the cookie header for being too large. (laughs) Yep, I've seen that before. (laughs) Cookies, man. I see it when people try and put like entire active record objects in cookies, but uh, you know, tracking information too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this one, I don't even know if it was the fact that it was hitting the four kilobyte limit on cookies. That's a browser enforced limit. And this was definitely the server rejecting the header that was being sent. I mean, that may just be a protection against denial of service, right? There has to be some limit. Sure. No, sure. I, I No, I mean, it makes sense. Like, like your server presumably also has uh, an upper limit on, on the maximum length of any header and the maximum length of any body that it'll accept. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was hilarious that literally, I mean, I'm assuming it was tracking shit because it was the cookie header 
was the only thing even remotely large enough to trigger this. But I just thought it was hilarious that like whatever's in there, you put there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Browsers. Um, anyway. Yeah. Browsers. We should wrap up. All right. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 138. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have any feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.